We're going to continue to talk about suffering tonight, and you'll be reading about suffering uh, this week in your one-word book. I I said this morning that when it comes to suffering, uh, there are no easy answers. And what I meant by that was, when we talk about suffering, it's a difficult subject, both to understand, to get a grasp on it, what it means, uh, how we should view it, but it's also difficult in terms of discussing it with, with others, uh, explaining it to non-believers. That's one of the biggest hurdles that non-believers have is how could a good God, an all-powerful, all-benevolent God, allow such evil and suffering to continue? That is a big roadblock for some folks as they, as they look at the Christian faith. But it's also a struggle for a lot of our own people, for a lot of baptized believers. And when somebody is really going through the valley and they're suffering, it's difficult to be able to minister to them in an effective way and to know what to say and how to say it. So it's a tough subject and there are no easy answers. But uh, when I said that, I didn't mean or intend to say that the Bible doesn't have plenty to say about it. It does. And we're going to go a little deeper tonight into what the Bible says about the suffering that we will experience as inhabitants of this planet, and how we should look at it as Christians. So tonight is a continuation of this morning's thoughts. We're going to build on the foundation that we laid this morning. And the question that I want us to answer tonight is, as Christians, as God's people, uh, part of God's family, how should we view and deal with suffering? And I just want to share four thoughts with you. Uh, for, what should we call them, uh, approaches or, well, I'll just leave it at that, um, that will hopefully guide our understanding and our, um, and our approach to dealing with suffering and helping others to deal with suffering as well. So here's the first one I want to share with you. When we suffer or when we witness suffering, It is important that we never take the Lord's name in vain. And I mean by that something a little different than the way we normally talk about that phrase, in taking the Lord's name in vain. What I mean is, we should never say things like, that suffering is or must be God's judgment for that sin or this sin. We should never put ourselves in the place of God And say that that person or that group is experiencing suffering because they were involved in that particular sin. Or that that iniquity was going on in their life. And so God sent the suffering their way as a punishment. You know that this inevitably happens after a disaster or a terrorist attack or a mass shooting. You'll have somebody come along. And under the mantle of Christianity will make such a claim. They'll say things like, well, the hurricane hit New Orleans because of the immorality in that city. Somebody even, this, a, a, under the mantle of Christianity, somebody claimed that uh, that shooting happened out in Las Vegas because people in this country have disrespect for our president and our national anthem. 
Jesus tells us in the Gospels specifically not to make statements like this. Uh, because we don't have the knowledge that we need in order to make such astounding claims. I'm referring to John chapter 9, verses 1 through 3. When Jesus' disciples ask him a question, they only give him two possible answers. And, well, we'll see how Jesus responds. John chapter 9, verses 1 through 3. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. A man who was, had never been able to see. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? Is it this man or his parents that he was born blind? So they automatically assume that his blindness is the result of sin in somebody's life and that his blindness is uh, a manifestation of God's judgment for that sin. And they want to know, Jesus, was it him or his parents? Those are the two options that they lay before Christ. Does Christ take either of those options as the right answer? No. He says, it was not that this man sinned. And so at this point, they're thinking, oh, okay, well, then it was his parents. And that's why he was born blind. That's why he has to suffer with this ailment. But then Jesus says, nor was it his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. So Jesus then goes on to heal him. But he rebukes the disciples here. Uh, and their, their outrageous assumption that this man suffers with blindness because of sin. Uh, either his own sin or the sin of his parents. I think also about the story of Job. You know, God rebukes the friends of Job. Those three friends who came on the scene of his suffering. Who did the right thing at first and sat with him. And mourned with him. But then they started to pontificate a little bit and share some of their wisdom. Uh, but they, the book of Job says, they were wrong uh, in what they had to say as it pertained to the will of God. And God rebuked those friends because they came along and they blamed Job's suffering on his wrongdoing. They said, you must have some kind of sin in your life. Uh, and that's the reason that you are going through the calamity that you're going through. That's the reason that all your property has been destroyed and, and your kids were killed and your whole life was tragically transformed. And God comes in at the end of that book and He rebukes them. And He says that you know, they had it wrong because they made this, this leap and, and said that Job is suffering because of sin. It was, a, uh, it was the judgment of God. So we dare not assign suffering to God's judgment. Doing so is unbiblical. And it pretends to know the mind of God. Uh, and it takes His name in vain. It uses the name of God as leverage to, to make a point. We don't have the ability to know such things. And so we dare not make statements like the ones that are often made when people are experiencing suffering. So that's the first idea I want to share with you tonight as we think about a Christian's view of suffering. But the second one is this. When we face suffering, when we observe the suffering of other folks, we need to remind ourselves of the fallenness of our world. 
we need to remind ourselves anew that this world has been broken, greatly tainted by the curse of sin. And the curse of sin is far-reaching. It has greater effects than we sometimes realize or or give it credit. Uh, It's so far-reaching that Paul even said, the creation itself is in bondage to corruption and groans for redemption. Which is mysterious language that we won't dig into tonight. But I think the point is, everything has been affected, everything has been damaged, destroyed as a result of sin. And in a sin-sick world, like the one that we're living in, we would expect to see all kinds of suffering. Suffering from natural disasters like fires and tornadoes and hurricanes. Suffering as a result, a direct result of sinful human behavior, drug addiction, um, terrorism, uh, lone gunmen who take the lives of innocent people, we would expect to see those kinds of things in a sin-sick world. And we do. And it's our fault. It's the fault of humanity. Our ancestors were given the freedom to choose between good and evil. They chose evil. And many humans today continue to choose evil and choose rebellion against God. And so the cycle of sinfulness and brokenness and suffering continues. God is the one who gave us the ability to choose. He's the one who created us with the ability to have free agency. But we're the ones, humanity are the ones who have decided to rebel against God, to continue sinning against God, and therefore we live in a broken, fallen world. A world full of suffering. And even though Jesus Christ came along, and He bore the full weight of sin's curse on the cross, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. He paid it all. We also need to realize that the final end to suffering won't occur until Jesus comes again. And I referenced some language from Revelation chapter 21, but I want to read from verse 4 of that chapter tonight. When Jesus returns, God... John says in Revelation, will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And so though we can live as the saved, as the redeemed family of God because of the sacrifice, we are awaiting the day when all sin and all wickedness and all suffering will will pass away. We are in in the in-between, between the already and the not yet. And we're waiting on that. We live in a broken world, a sin-stricken world in the meantime. And to use Paul's language again from Romans 8, we are groaning as we eagerly await the freedom, the deliverance from this world in which we find ourselves. So the suffering that we witness, it arises out of a fallen, broken, sinful world. It is the natural effect of the rebellion of sin and the fall of humanity. And that was our our choice uh, from the very beginning of time. So we dare not assign 
God's judgment to a, a certain uh, or a specific uh, suffering that somebody is going through. But we can observe generally that suffering occurs in our world as a result of the sinfulness and brokenness of this world. So here's the third idea I want to share with you uh, this evening. And we touched on this a little bit this morning. We sh- it is altogether appropriate as Christians, and we should allow ourselves to feel the pain of suffering. Not brush it aside, not pretend like it doesn't exist, not just slap a smile on and feel guilty for feeling pain and hurt when we face sadness and, and sickness and death in our lives. We should allow ourselves to feel the pain of suffering because God does. God allows Himself to feel the pain of human suffering. Christians know that God grieves the suffering that He sees. We see in Genesis chapter 6, verse 6, that it grieved God deeply, the suffering and the sinfulness that He witnessed among His human creation. And Christians also know, and, and we affirm, that God has partaken in human suffering. That He Himself has experienced the suffering that we experienced. The suffering of a father witnessing the death of his son on the cross. Having to look upon his only begotten son. And for the sake of the salvation of all humanity. Watch as his only son died that cruel death. As his only son cried out to him. My God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? God knows about suffering. He knows about pain, hurt. So does the Son of God. God in the flesh. The suffering of Jesus, who as the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 4, 15, a Savior who can sympathize with our weaknesses. Because He's been here. And He knows. He knows the pain that we experience in our lives. He knows about the hunger and the thirst and the poverty and suffering through heat and all sorts of other problems that we face that bring about suffering. He can sympathize with us. And He bore the greatest suffering the world has ever known when He carried the sins of all humanity on His back and took those with Him and put them to death on the cross. So God knows about suffering. He knows about it. And I think about, I think about Jesus at the tomb of Lazarus. And I want you, this is the time when I, I do want you to get your Bible and go with me to John 11. John 11, we'll start reading at verse 32. But this is a long, drawn-out story here in John 11. John spends a lot of time developing this and building this up. This is the story of the resurrection of Lazarus. And we know that Jesus is told about Lazarus' illness. Lazarus and his sisters, Mary and Martha, were good friends of Jesus. They lived in a city called Bethany. Jesus was summoned to come so that he could heal Lazarus, but he delayed coming. And he delays coming because, well, he reveals it in places like John 11, verse 4. He says, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. So Jesus knows what's going on with Lazarus. He knows how 
what's going to happen with Lazarus, that he's going to die. And he's got this purpose in mind when it comes to the situation that Lazarus faces. He says again in verse 14, uh, he had said that, you know, he's going to fall asleep and his disciples were confused about, or that he had fallen asleep and his disciples were confused. They didn't realize that he meant he had died. And so Jesus spells it out for him. He says, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. Let us go to him. So Jesus has a plan in place. He says, I'm glad that I wasn't there because I'm about to do something awesome. So Jesus knows all along that he's going to get to Bethany after Lazarus had died so that he can bring Lazarus back to life. So the knowledge of that makes what happens when he finally gets to Bethany somewhat confusing. Interesting, surprising. Look in verse 32. He finally gets there. Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him. She fell at his feet and she said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, listen to what John says. He was deeply moved in his spirit and he was greatly troubled. Now, why is Jesus deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled? If he knows that in a matter of moments, when he gets to the tomb of Lazarus, he's going to bring him back to life. Why would Jesus even be phased by this? Why does Jesus not approach this with the utmost confidence and and take Mary aside and Martha too and say, hey, you have nothing to worry about. I'm, I'm here. I can bring the dead to life. It's because he feels the pain that they were feeling. And he knows that even though he's going to bring Lazarus to life, he shouldn't have died in the first place. Because this is not the world that God created. This is not what God intended. Death came about because of sin, which came about because of Adam and Eve's decision. And so what we have here is God in the flesh grieving the state of affairs in the world and the suffering that comes about because of sin and the death that comes about because of sin. And Jesus, though he is going to bring Lazarus back to life, he still feels the sting of death, the pain of death. And he shares in the suffering of those who are grieving their brother. So even though Jesus knows what's going to happen, he still takes time to feel the pain of it, the suffering. He is deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. And then in Chapter 11, verse 35, we get the most popular memory verse of all time. Just two words. Jesus wept. Jesus wept. So much meaning wrapped up in those two little words. Jesus wept and the Jews said, see how he loved him. See how he loved him. And then he comes along, and of course, you know the rest of the story. Verse 38, Jesus deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it, and in time he'll ask them to roll the stone away, and Lazarus comes out in his grave clothes, fully alive. And he says, unbind him and let him go. But even though Jesus knew the resurrection was coming, the resurrection of Lazarus, it still didn't prevent him from grieving and from feeling the pain of it. 
And even though we know the resurrection is on its way, and there's a life coming where there will be no death and no suffering and no pain and no tears, we know that. But that still does not and should not prevent us from feeling the pain of the suffering that we witness in our world. The grief that comes from knowing that this is not the way it's supposed to be. It's not the way it's always going to be. But in the here and now, this is not what God intended. This is not how it ought to be. God feels for and He feels with us in our suffering. He grieves. And we can too. And we should too. And in fact, when we don't, it ought to concern us. I remember I was in a graduate class back in 2011 when that giant tsunami hit Japan. Do you remember this? The images that morning coming out of Japan, I think I've shared this story before, but the images were stunning of the destruction, of the water rushing in, these villages of houses and roads, everything being washed away. It was like out of a movie, it really was. It was like watching um, you know, the highlight reel of special effects from a bunch of movies. And so I was in class that morning and a bunch of the other guys were in there and we were watching this footage just amazed at the images. We prayed about it and our professor led the prayer. And as he began to pray for the victims of that tsunami, he began to cry. started getting choked up. And in that prayer, I was ashamed of myself. And I felt rebuked by him in a good way. Because I wasn't focused on the pain and the suffering of those people. I was just impressed with how awesome the images were. But he felt the pain of it. He grieved. He felt the suffering of it. And he taught me a lesson that day. That we should all allow ourselves to feel the pain of the suffering. Because God does. And lastly, let me share this with you. And this, of course, echoes what we talked about this morning. We, when we face suffering, when we witness suffering, we ought to stress the temporary nature of it. As we said this morning, God will ultimately call all suffering to a halt. And that should bring a lot of comfort and assurance into our lives. Let me read 2 Corinthians, our text for tonight that Carrie read earlier. 2 Corinthians 4, verses 16 through 18. I referenced uh, verse 17, but I want us to look at, at all three of these verses as we get ready to close out. Paul says, We do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. That's 2 Corinthians 4, 16. We may be facing outer afflictions. It may, be, it may seem like our world is just spinning further and further out of control and our bodies are ailing and they're deteriorating and we're aging. But on the inside... We are being renewed day by day. Why? Verse 17, this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. We're being renewed and we have hope though our outer selves are wasting away. And we look not to the things that are seen but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen, they are temporary. They are transient. But the things that are unseen, those are eternal. One is transient and temporary. The suffering that we face. The other, the glory that is to come. It is forever. It is eternal. So we can make it through whatever life throws at us here because we know that we're looking at an eternal reward. Presence, uh, 
forever in God's presence. So as James suggests to, to us, commands us, we need to pray for wisdom. He says, if you don't have it, you've got to pray for it. And God will give it, give it to you generously. That's the promise of James chapter 1, verse 5. And we need to pray for wisdom as it pertains to talking about suffering from a Christian perspective. Wisdom as it pertains to ministering to suffering people. Wisdom to know what to do when somebody's feeling pain. What to say. Not just what to say, but also how to say it. And when to say it. So Jesus endured the very worst suffering that this world had to offer in order to redeem you. And the question is, have you embraced the life that He provides for you by the death that He died. And if you haven't, you have an opportunity to do that tonight. Or if you need to come and ask for prayers for any reason, we would encourage you to do that as well as we stand and sing together.